This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Masterclass podcast for today. Uh, I'm James Roy, I'm your host, and today I'm talking to James Knight. Now, James Knight has been working in various forms of media for 30 years or so. His roles have included television reporter, sports commentator, documentary producer, radio newsreader, newspaper journalist and author. And he's written something like 13 adult non-fiction books and he's currently working on the first book in a children's series, which I'll ask him about in just a minute. Uh, these days he visits schools to talk about storytelling. I've seen James in action. He's a very impressive storyteller. Uh, he's currently overseeing a not-for-profit global book project, which you might chat about a bit. Uh, this is to include high school children from about a dozen countries across the world. He's a renowned traveller. He's lived and worked in India and has been a volunteer community worker in Ecuador and in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, one of the places that I have quite close to my heart as well. Um, and also, and this is where we start to question James's uh, sanity, I guess. He runs marathons for fun. See, that, that, that's a sentence, James, that's a sentence that I don't think makes any sense to anyone. Yeah, it's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it, James? I went out for an 18K run this morning and I, I had the grand piano on my back for the last 10, so its definition of stupidity is definitely plodding along the pavement for more than about 10 or 15 minutes in, in oh, one go. But that's a, that's it's a, worth it. It's crazy. Is it really, though? Is it, though? Oh, yeah. listen, I, to, to, to be honest, it's, to me it's actually like writing a book. And I say that because you would know yourself that you can bleed over the keyboard or you can pull hair out that you can't afford to lose when you're writing a book and you're up at, oh, God, my clock, and you go to bed at even later and you sort of go, why am I doing this? And on every Sunday morning when you're training for a marathon, bling, the alarm goes off at 5.30 or somewhat similar, and you go, I've got three hours of running ahead without a break. What are you doing, you idiot? But then... All those months later, you either uh, open a fresh box from the publisher and see a book for the first time or you see it on a bookshelf in a bookstore or you cross that finish line in a marathon and you go, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's pretty cool. So there's a bit of sort of self-congratulation there, but it's um, I actually equate the two together. So the tip for you is to, after this, go out and have a, I don't know, let's start off gently, 10, 15K. <laughs> What I, what I like about what you said is that you said that uh, writing a book is a lot like running a marathon and I've written a book so I don't need to run the marathon now because I know what it feels like apparently. There you go. I'm just presenting you with the medal over your neck right thank, now. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll, um, I'll stand and salute and might even have some tears in my eyes. So there today we're chatting, uh, to, chatting with James about um, hunting and gathering ideas um, we talked to Deborah Bella in an earlier podcast about this idea of hunting and gathering ideas, but it's, I think it's good to talk to a few different uh, writers about how they approach this, especially um, considering that you have written predominantly non-fiction books. Um, so let's talk about how that might be different from gathering for a fiction book. Or, or are the principles the same? I think the principles are the same, but I can only say how I work, and I come from a journalistic background. 
And when I talk about writing, I mention the fundamentals of journalism, which based around just a matter of a, a few words, a handful of words, who, what, where, why, when, and how. And I will hammer those words until the end of my dear days because they are just so important to me. They are the most necessary tools in my work kit because they can keep you going all day. And to hunt for an idea or search for an idea to begin with, it all begins with asking questions. And James, I actually think the process of, of asking questions is something we don't do broadly, forget writing, but broadly across society as well, because it's, it's got all the, the critical thinking, the problem solving, all the buzzwords that we talk about, who, what, where, why, when and how do it, they will give you answers. And from those answers, you get more questions and then you get more answers and you dig and you dig and you dig. And I find that a really fascinating, infuriating too, but primarily fascinating part of the process because you can look at even the most mundane object and start asking questions about it. And then all of a sudden, you go, I mean, you can, well, I'm holding a pencil and yes, it, it writes on a piece of paper, but who perhaps has held this pencil before me? What were they doing with it? What were they writing? Were they writing the headline to a news article or were they signing a contract for a multi-million dollar sports deal? There are all these different avenues you can go down and each one needs exploring. Um, and then you, you strip it back and work out your, your story from there once you've got your information. So as a, as a non-fiction writer, um, and let's talk about that aspect of, of what you do for now, um, I know as a fiction writer, often I'll start writing about a particular thing and as I start researching or looking for more depth in that idea, I find, I find myself going, actually, that's not even the best part of this story. I'm much more interested in this other aspect of the story. Um, but, presumably, yeah. yep. but presumably as a non-fiction writer, you go into a project going, this is, a, this is the project about Henry Lawson and, and Banjo Patterson, for example, one of your books. How much how much room do you leave in your process to go, actually, that's not a terribly interesting part of this story? The example I would give perhaps is um, that movie Lincoln, which Oliver Stone made uh, about Abraham Lincoln. And you expect to be a biopic about him. In a sense, it was, but it was actually not about the Civil War or anything like that. It was about a wrangle that he had with the Senate and the House to try and get some piece of legislation passed. Is that something you find yourself doing in your yep. research? Absolutely. And once again, I could take a leaf out of the, the journalist's to-do book. And there's a saying, don't bring me a story, bring me an angle. Mm. And what I mean by that, you can have a, a broad narrative, but within that, it always helps, as you mentioned, with the linking example, something that is so specific that you can really drill down into and, and almost create its own plot in its own sense. Uh, I, I, I do that a lot and I, I look at even the last book I wrote where essentially when I spoke with a publisher, it was about probably to be written in the, the voice of the subject. So it would be, I did this, I did that, Bernie Shakeshaft, a social worker. But once I got to meet him and started talking to him, I thought it wouldn't do his story justice if I spoke to him. So I went back to the publisher and said, can I interview everyone around him and then use his voice as well mixed in because I think it'll give it a lot more layers to, to him. And by doing that, I found a hell of a lot more interesting stories about him and a lot more depth and dimension. Uh, so it is very much a case of 
reinventing as you go along. You can have a set idea. Yes, I might be talking about the life of James Roy. Then after one initial meeting with you and then going back to do some research, I'll go, okay, well, actually James plays in a band or he plays, he's muso, he plays a number of instruments and go, wow, that's worth exploring. And until you explore that, you just never know quite what's there, but you've got to open that door to begin with to, to give yourself the opportunity to find out what's there. Do you find, without, without dropping anyone in it, do you ever find that um, publishers don't quite go for the angle you're exploring? You go, this is the one I want, and they go, well, actually, that's, that, we don't think that's going to be terribly interesting. Yeah, abso- absolutely. And it's becoming harder to do that, particularly when you pitch ideas to, to publishers, because I'm very much as you are, very, very story-driven. And I don't know how many times, particularly in recent years, you'll have the case of, yeah, that, that, that is a good story, but it won't sell. And I think is a, a real pity about the way information and stories are perhaps told in the modern day that we've got to be very, very careful that we don't lose respect and sight of just how we present those stories through the, the written form. Especially at a time when, when the whole you know risk of getting a bit political very briefly at a time when we are told not to trust what we see in the mainstream media because it's it's fake news or whatever. How do you navigate that space in what you're doing? Again, it comes back to questions, James, because so many people and you see you see it in in schoolwork, and it's one thing that I really encourage. And I know, having seen a lot of other writers going to schools and talk to students, that you really encourage that. So many kids, I'll go to Dr. Google and they'll get an answer. And the answer's up there. Well, there's all this space underneath that they don't explore. So, and what happens particularly in this this world of information overload, that answer may not necessarily be correct. Or if it is, it certainly only gives you one dimension of the answer. So it is, it really does all come back and I'll hammer it until the the proverbials come home, it really is digging, 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 asking those questions and then knowing what is reputable information and knowing what isn't. And that's an ongoing battle for each and every one of us who every day clicks online to read comments from journalists, news information sites, even comments from your best friends. You really have to learn to differentiate between what is good journalism, what is bad writing, what is good research, what is bad writing. So what are those questions then? Are they just the, the who, what, where kind of questions? Basically, yeah, absolutely. And you, you can, like I, I constantly bookmark things and I, I go, right, I'll, I'll come back to, for example, if I were to be writing about the drought, just doing a, a small newspaper article or online article about the drought, and I'll see the Namoy River in northwestern New South Wales flows into Keeper Dam, and Keeper Dam is only 0.5% full. I immediately go, well, 0.5% full. Gee, that's very low. So I bookmark it and go, right, 0.5%, it's there. I've got to challenge it. I've got to check it. So it's a matter of fact-checking. And there used to be, certainly when I started journalism, we could never broadcast a story. This was a Channel 10 News we could never broadcast a story when I first started unless the facts were corroborated by two independent sources. That, of course, has gone by the wayside now, but I still like to adhere to it. And so whenever there's a little red flag that pops up in my reading or my ears go, mm, that doesn't sit well, I'm also always very conscious of going, right, 
got to ask more questions of that. You've also talked about reading widely. I mean, I know that back in the day it was newspapers and, of course, now you've got everything that's on the, in the online world. Again, how do you know what, what's good and what's not? Because if you, you listen to some certain radio stations or certain websites or certain channel news services, it's a very different set of facts, if you like. I mean, Kellyanne Conway actually used the term alternate facts, yes, which is, yes. you know, which is just mind-bending. But um, how, do you, how do you make that? make certain that what you're reading is actually the right thing if you let's say you're writing a biography about someone and you you go and throw out some piece of factual evidence that is not in fact the case at all yeah it's a it's a tough one um i think it has been the the twisting of truth has been around for a long time if you look you could go back to the yellow press and william randolph hearst who was one of the great early day media mega superstars who ran a, owned a lot of uh, press in America. And, you know, he had agendas. And since then, many other proprietors across various forms of the media, yes, they do have agendas. They have business, social, political agendas. So what can be considered a fact by one is not necessarily considered a fact by another news organisation. And sadly, without getting too deep and political and this it really aggravates me now how there is so much left versus right conversation mm. in the media and in the public space about well the left said this we will say the opposite because we're on the opposite side of the, the political seesaw but how do you determine a bit of experience a bit of a gut feel and i must admit there are times yeah often in my past where I haven't got things right and inexperience particularly was to blame. The older and more hardened I get, I think I make less mistakes, but they're still out there. But when you write something, you have to firmly believe you've done the research behind it to at least believe that your statement or fact will stand up to some form of quite rigorous research. And if it doesn't, put your hand up and go, yeah, I, I got that wrong. Uh, it's a very difficult position to be in, and I feel very sorry particularly for writers these days in the media who are under the pressure of not only having to, to write newspaper copy, they have to write online copy, then they have to put out something on Instagram or on Twitter, and they're across several platforms, and they're across several platforms where they also have to uh, adhere to the pressure of just getting it out there. And it seems to me there's a certain extent now where it's about getting information out there, then getting it right, as opposed to yesteryear where it was, we can sit on this, we've got to get it right first. So harking back to your original question, it's very much a case of just, yeah, if you feel that red flag or if you feel uncertain about something, go off and, and research and research until you're comfortable with the, the position you're putting forward. And as I say, sometimes it happens. Sometimes mistakes slip through, as they have in some of my books, and that's one reason why I never, ever, ever read back a book um, I've read after I get a copy of it because I'm scared to. One of my first books, probably the one that kind of put me on the map, so to speak, was uh, a book called Captain Mac, which is 
about a, yeah, a, a, a thank you a guy in um, in the prisoner of war camp in Changi or somewhere similar. Um, mm. But the regiment that I put him in, I discovered after I I thought I'd done my research. This is back in the days of going to the library to do your research. You didn't just get online and look things up. You had to go yeah. and find the right book. And I was in Hornsby Library and bringing home piles of books. And then when I, when the time came to write the prequel to it. Uh, Billy Max War, suddenly I realised that the regiment that I'd put him in was never actually fighting in Singapore. So the, I had to concoct this whole sort of sidebar story to put him in the place where he would have ended up in Changi, which was, yeah. you know, clumsy. And A, I didn't realise I was going to be writing a prequel, so it probably didn't matter so much, what at, or so I thought at the time. But then once I came to write that prequel, I was like, oh, I really wish I'd been a little bit more careful on the get <laughs> on the first, yeah. first time around. yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's and, and it's a tough position. Um, and sometimes I think looking at fiction writers, it can be even even tougher um, because particularly if you're doing, say, a historical fiction piece, that you've got to base it on some form of fact, whether it be loose or not to begin with. And you can tie yourself up in knots or put yourself in a corner if you don't quite get that launch pad right to begin with. Now, in the, in the notes you sent me when we were preparing... Uh... To, to do this, um, you said something about asking those questions, who, what, where, why, etc., and reading wider. Yeah. But then you say, constantly explore your own thoughts about issues large and small. Strip your answers yeah. right back. What, what does that yeah. mean? One of the most important moments as a writer, as a person, and certainly as a parent, happened to me when I was or rather when my son, who's now just turned nine, he was three years old. And I'll tell you the whole story because as a result of that story, it has made me rethink a lot, not only about writing, but life in general. And I love rain, as so many country people do, but I grew up loving the sound of rain on a tin roof. Mm. And there were times there during drought where I'd look out the window and I'd see a far-off strike of lightning over the Mount Blackjack. I lived in a place called Gunnedah and, and I'd go, oh, gee, I hope we get a storm. And then you get the little plink, plink, plink on the rooftop and the rain had thundered down and I'd wrap myself up under the derna and all the blanket as it was back then and go, oh, yeah, isn't this great? Send it down, Huey. I didn't know what Huey meant, but that's what Mum said, so that was good enough for me. But when Iggy, my son, we were living in suburban Sydney at the time, um, when he was about three, I wanted him to experience a thunderstorm. And until that time, basically, he looked at it through a glass window. He'd never, by and large, been out in, in rain too much. So, come on, mate, we're going out into the backyard. And it was absolutely chucking it down and there was boom, crash, wallop, thump with the thunder and lightning all around us. And, you know, I was being a bit of a mad dad with water splashing down the face and Iggy sort of looking up at me and uh, I say, mate, see that, hear that? That's electricity. That's so powerful. That's Mother Nature. And after one really loud crack, he squeezed my hand really tightly and he said, Daddy, and uh, yes, mate? what's on the other side? And I sort of looked at him and said, oh, what do you mean, mate? And he said, what's on the other side of the sky? And to him, it was the sky cracking. Mm -hmm. Lightning was the sky cracking. Right. Through the eyes of a child. And, you know, sometimes we are tarnished by having too much knowledge and too much experience. And it really does help to strip it back as though you're a painter and you've got a blank canvas and you go, right, 
where do I begin? And I think it can be the same or not. I think I know it is the same with storytelling in that sometimes assumption can be very much your worst enemy because you're, you've jumped one or two or three stages of your writing because you've already assumed that's happened or people will know about that person. But if you strip it back and look through a child's eyes and continually be curious about what's around you and use all your senses, you're going to go on a hell of a lot more rewarding journey, I think. Um, so it's all tied in with, with curiosity and you certainly work with um, fiction in the imagination space and, and tapping into it. I call it IT. Everyone needs their imagination time. So when on that note, it was about um, that I, I sent to exploring your own thoughts. This is where running becomes important, James. Um, quite often when I'm out and about and I just sort of like a Melbourne Cup horse on the back straight where it's half asleep and you just let it nod off before it's got to charge home. And I'm in that state with my running. That's when I start thinking about my life or thinking about family or just whatever might be on my mind or what may come into my mind. And I, and I strip the issue back and um, it really gives me a, a much greater clarity of thought. And I think it's a wonderful place to be in. And I'd highly recommend anyone try it. Even if you think, you know, everything about everything, start at the very bottom and, and look for that crack in the sky and see what you can see. I, um, it reminds me of a, of a, one one of my favourite jokes, actually, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are camping and uh, in the middle of the night, Watson is woken by Sherlock Holmes shaking him and he says, Watson, look at the stars, what do they tell you? And Watson thinks, I've had about enough of this as I can take. So he thinks, I'm going to put this to bed once and for all, I'm going to go through every possibility. So he says, okay, fair enough. So I look at the stars, you know, cartologically I can see that the Southern Cross is at my feet, so that's south down there. Uh, meteorologically I can see it's a clear night, so it'll probably be a clear day. Uh, astro astrolog astronomically I can see that, you know, we're in the middle of the Milky Way. Astrologically I can see that Venus is coming to Neptune, so Sagittarius is going to have a rough week. Chronologically I can see it's about 3 in the morning. How am I going so far? And Sherlock Holmes says, no, Watson, you Burke, someone's stolen our tent. Yes, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, you know, I guess that, that yeah. sort of illustrates your point a little bit, I think, in a, in a, in a Yeah, way. yeah, ab absolutely. And, and it, it is the most joyful space to be in. Like Iggy, he's, uh, he's a devil to get to sleep at night, an absolute devil. And he's got all the, he's got a whole thick encyclopedia full of distraction theories, which he pulls out at random. Okay, I'll work on tactic number 36 tonight and I'll get dad to talk about maths or get dad to talk about a cricket tour or something. And on one night, he, his distraction theory was just off the chart questions. And it always starts with dad, followed by the little pause. Uh, yes, mate. If you can see through everything, does that mean you're blind? And I went, wow, that's coming from then he would have been about six and you go, that's the way kids think. If you can see through everything, does that mean you're blind? Yeah. And when you think about it, well, you can't see anything if you're seeing through everything. Yeah, um, I guess that's true. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, and that's the way kids think. And I think a lot more of the world's problems could be solved if we give a greater platform to kids in a room with, you know, experts as well. And go, so what do you think about the the glaciers melting. <laughs> well, oh. we, asked her, we asked her at Thunberg and we know how that worked out for her, don't we? 
yeah, yeah. There's so much, sadly, there's so much judgment in the world, but that's an issue for another day. But I, I, I genuinely do. And it, as I said to you, right, to preempt this whole theme is that it's not only made a difference to my writing, it's made me, I think, a, a much more rounded individual. It certainly helped with my parenthood and in relationships and just the world at large to really strip things back and, and ask those questions. And, yeah, it's it's uplifting. So we're, we're kind of we're, we're going to run out of time in a while, so we need to kind of move on. But um, how did these, these ideas that you... Um, and I don't mind that we've taken a bit of a... a we've kind of done what you're ag- advocating, I guess. We've taken a bit of an idea and just seen where it leads and found ourselves going down some interesting little... little um, cul-de-sacs but these ideas once you've got the idea um, how do you expand on that Um, I'll show you if you like so if well I can see that but our podcast listeners can't so (laughs) what it is is it's a big piece of a it's a three paper with a whole lot of writing on it no it's uh it's um, basically a whole folder full of um poster size bits of paper that's how I begin and I will primarily in the nonfiction genre, if I say, if I'm doing your life story, if, if I were to interview you and I interviewed your wife and your family and your friends and your colleagues and all the rest, and after going back and fastidiously listening to all the interviews, my process begins with very large pieces of paper and they become my map and I'm constantly scuffing out some lines and adding other bits of line. Do I work chronologically or do I work on a particular angle? And once I work on that angle, how do I bring the other bits of the story into it? Uh, so I'm, that's where it all begins. And then there's a bit of trial and error. Unfortunately, and I say this with in bold, unfortunately writing in the, the nonfiction space, quite often... I'm very much dictated by the publisher's deadline and they can be pretty pretty tight, pretty savage. And when you're doing that, you don't necessarily get the best product you can um, because you just don't have the time to go back and finesse and rewrite. Obviously, it can still go through the editing process, but it's I think it's uh, one of the, the unfortunate parts about being almost a commercial writer in the non-fiction field, that you're, you're driven by that big thundercloud that hangs over your head and follows you around for the 9 or 10 or 12 months or however long the project takes. But initially, it all very much begins with a big piece of paper and drawing a map from there and then just experimenting as you go. And that, I guess that's sometimes when you find yourself, as I said at the beginning, you find yourself going, actually, I'm, much, I'm spending a lot more time on this particular yes. corner of the graph at the moment. Yeah, and, and it's, it's an important lesson, and this is why it's so important for other people to read your, your work or if I'm, like, I'm from a television or radio background as well and let other people look at your story and look at the way you've done things because what you can think is good writing or a really important piece Someone else will go, yeah, no. Nah. Mm. And that's, that, that's really important. You can be too precious about some of your own stuff. I was going to say that, um, you know, you and I have spoken um, recently about the, the show on Amazon, uh, The Test, which is about, you know, it's fly on the wall following the Australian cricket team as they came back from the, the disaster and the debacle that was the uh, Cape Town ball tampering thing. 
Um, yeah. But the people who made that have had to make a choice, haven't they? They've had to go, now, are we going to follow Steve Smith's path back or are we going to follow David Warner's or are we going to look at the way coaching methods changed? Are we going to look about look at the, the way the media dealt with this? And in actual fact, what it ends up really being about is how Justin Langer has more or less transformed the team, or at least ostensibly from the outside, Justin Langer. And it's really about Justin, the coach's relationship with the team is really at the centre of that. But it could have really been about any of those different things, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And when you start a project like that, which is an overwhelmingly large project, you would have a few, don't bring bring me a story, bring me an angle, we get back Mm. to that. You would have a few points where you go, okay, maybe it's about Smith or Langer, or maybe it's about the reformation of David Warner. You would have all those at the back of your mind. And until you actually get into it, particularly because it's an observational documentary style where you fly on the wall, as you're saying, you don't quite know what's ever going to happen as opposed to the horrendous um, reality TV genre where everything is so overscripted, it's just banal. Mm-hmm. But uh, you've got to be ready to pounce on it. And you may have pounced on it two weeks into filming and then you go, right, okay, well, we've got to reshuffle a bit of stuff because this is our strong, our strong stuff. And you're, going to have to throw, you're probably going to have to throw some good stuff away as well, aren't you? Which is something yeah, you absolutely. do as a writer. You go, oh, all yeah. that footage of David Warner getting hit in the head in the nets, that's of no use to us if we're taking this other angle, you know. Yeah, and it's certainly in television and it works certainly in writing as well, but I always used to think when sitting in an edit booth in um, putting a story together with an editor, no one at home knows what you leave out. Mm. they're only judging you by what you put in put in yeah 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 and it was interesting and with that um with the you say you haven't seen it yet the that, that no show. no um there is one moment and i'm not spoiling anything for anyone because this pop this is my point is that when i watched it there's a moment where usman kawaja is sitting down and and justin langer says to him so tell me what's going on the guy's sort of a bit bit distant at the moment and Usman Khawaja says, can I be completely honest? He said, I'd rather you were. And he says, basically, the guys are scared of walking on eggshells around you because you're actually being a bit unfair and a bit too hard on them. And the look on Justin Langer's face is, is sort of half smile like, how dare you? And you can just yeah. tell he's absolutely steaming. And then and at the time I thought, that's an interesting moment. And then about uh, three or four days ago, the news story came out saying that, you know, somebody had noticed this and said that, was the moment when Usman Khawaja's test career died when he had the courage to say that to Justin Langer. Now, whether or not that is true or not isn't really my point. My point is that that, for me, was a moment that needed to be explored more. So that was an opportunity for those guys to explore something different that they didn't. Yeah, I think when you when you look at moments like this, and as I say, I pass judgment on um, the test, but who is the overseer of that whole project? Mm. and how much control does Cricket Australia perhaps have in it or doesn't have in it can mm. determine what story angles are chosen and what aren't. I'm not saying rightly or wrongly yeah, that has happened in this case, but I'll, I will, if you, if you like, very quickly, if you like uh, the test um, and you get Netflix during this time of self-isolation, there's a cracker, cracker sports obdoc on there called Sunderland Till I Die. Oh, yes. Um, and it's, it's worth watching. It is. Well, I, I watched that prepared to hate it because I'm a Newcastle United supporter, so, so I, I, can't, I can't say anything good about Sunderland. It's, it's written, in, it's written in, in, the, um, in the rule book. It's just that's how it is. 
Yeah, no, well, that comes up in the in the documentary a bit, but I thought that was very well done, whether there was, you know, people overlooking it who wanted to really pull the strings about the storyline, who knows, but mm. it certainly took me in because it was very much, and this is one thing that I'd like to think about the way I present stories, is it's very much about the people. Your latest book is called Back on Track, uh, which tells yeah. the life of a, of 2020 Australian local here of the year, Bernie Shakeshaft. That sounds to me that as a writer i wouldn't see that and go that's a story i need to go digging into what was it made you go digging into the life of somebody who set up a a not-for-profit if you like a a social a social worker who wins local hero of the year and then goes on and sets up an organization what what was the angle when someone says bring me the angle what was the angle that made you bring that story well, a publisher first approached me right. and Bernie, I'd known about Bernie for any number of years and my mother who lives still in a country town, um, Bernie actually spent time in that country town. He's now based in Armadale, and he uses as one of the core elements of his program working dogs, primarily border collies, to help re-engage youths. And as you'd be aware where you are on, on this side of the Great Divide as opposed to the other side, that... Um, there is a great, I won't say crisis, but there is certainly a significant problem, an alarming problem with disengagement of youths. They can't find work or they don't suit the education system and they may carry a lot of other baggage from their home life or whatever the case may be. And Bernie, over a period of years, has not only set up this organisation through his own goodness, but he's dragged along the whole Armadale community with him to be part of it. And that's one of the most extraordinary parts of this story. Yes, he's got these beautiful images of boys cuddling beautiful border collies, but the fact that so many people have had their own voluntary buy-in to a really tough story, and these kids imagine the unimaginable, and a lot of them have been there, uh, and that itself, and I think there should be more of those sorts of stories, but from a publishing perspective, I, I dipped my lid to the publisher, Hachette, because they took a risk on it because mm. those sort of books in a commercial market are certainly a risk, but when you you get into them, you go, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's, and I, I'm very proud that that story um, has been told and Bernie has gone on to, as you say, win the local hero of the year and he's doing terrific stuff and he will and his whole community will continue to. James Knight, thank you so much for talking to us today with um, Westward's mini masterclasses. I'm going to come back to you at some point and, and get, pick your brains about some other things. But uh, would you like, as we wrap up, would you like to give us a short plug for your website? Uh, don't worry about that. People can type a name in and find me online. If not, they'll find another James Knight who might be more interesting than me. Who knows, James? So thank you very much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to coming out and having a run through the Blue Mountains with you. And actually, a run? Oh, my God. You can make the run through the Blue Mountains, stop at my house, I'll make you a coffee. How does that sound? <laughs> it's a work in progress. A work in progress. Yeah, thanks so much, mate. Appreciate it. Pleasure.